Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that, you know, actually enjoys a brisk walk in cold weather. I'm a big fan, Amanda. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah, it's, sure. kind of, it's kind of bracing. It'll wake you up a little bit. Obviously, I mean, the critical thing is the people in Dubliners know it so well is you got to be properly clothed. Otherwise, yeah, of course, it's like the easiest way to get sick. <laughs> so, you know, no full on blizzards, please. But yeah, a yeah. little bit of a chill if you have the proper clothing. Like, gosh, I love mm-hmm. it. It's refreshing. During the um, intense COVID times when I went home for a winter holiday with my mom, we did a couple of pretty daring walks, like 20 degree walks. <laughs> and those are, you know, you got to really bundle up. But I don't know. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, and and even like with it being a blizzardy and outside, outside, like I love just walking in snow. I think it's just one of the the most beautiful things to do. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame that, like so many things, snow turns to mush and disgusting debris or whatever (laughs) after a while. But, yeah, a fresh snow is, yeah, there's a reason that ends up in the poems. It's really quite something. Um, If you have absolutely no idea why we're talking about walking in the cold, it's because you found a book club part two episode on the short story collection Dubliners by James Joyce, kind of literary, I don't know, icon or titan or something, phrase it it how you want. Uh, If you found this podcast in error, then, hey, thanks for checking us out anyway. Um, We will be discussing that book in detail today, book club episodes are analytical deep dive episodes as i have already mentioned we're the lightly literary podcast you can find us on instagram and facebook under that account name just at the lightly literary podcast which is all one word so check us out there give us a follow we post updates about the books we're doing a reading schedule like light promotions for the books and that's about it really just like tying in and keeping people up with the the readings um like i said these are spoiler filled episodes so today we'll be discussing the back half of dubliners which actually is way fewer stories than the first half did you enjoy the balance of that more less yeah i don't know like the the since the last section is just four stories it's actually just the four stories that which are quite a bit longer especially yeah. the dead i don't know i i liked the short short stories as well and then these longer stories i also enjoyed it's just it's almost like two different two different collections almost mm-hmm. um, yeah but i enjoyed them both yeah yeah and i is the dead i mean we could just look this up because there is an official sort of award season length for this defining this but is the dead a novella it's it could be one i don't know because it's only like what 30 pages yeah mine is 50 yeah. but i think my print is a little bigger yeah <laughs> so and you've got like a million more footnotes <laughs> yeah the footnotes are all in the back for sure but yes yeah mine is i think mine's the 40-ish pages it's it's close anyway if it's just if it's a short story it's about as long as they can get and if it's a novella, yeah. it's it's brief. Um, novelette, maybe. There's, like, another name. <laughs> um, it says, um, yeah, it says it's, it can be considered a novella because it's, okay. uh, bet- it's around fifteen to 16,000 words. Okay, yeah. That feels about right to me. The scope was maybe not novel, or, uh, sorry, novella length, or kind of scope, but it definitely is longer. So, at any rate, if we haven't made it clear by now, we'll be spoiling the, at this point, the entirety of the short story collection is fair game, and at the end, we'll do some segments that kind of discuss the entirety of it. But for now, like any short story or essay collection, we've just chosen a couple things to discuss. We agreed that we should discuss The Dead, since it is the longest, most ambitious story in the whole thing. So we're like, okay, we'll pick that one. And then we both agreed to do A Mother. That's the other short story that we're going to discuss and analyze. The other two, Ivy Day in the Committee Room and what's the other one? I forget. 
Uh, and I could look it up, one? but why? You know, my book's in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. The Dead Grace. Grace. I thought those were fine, but the... So I did something bold in the back half, I'll just say now. I looked at zero footnotes. After coming off of our discussion in the uh-huh. first half, I just thought, you know what? Let me try it this way and see if I completely misread things or have absolutely zero comprehension or whatever. Let it be what it is. Like, I'm going to try. I did go back and check them when I was filling out our outline. I did go back and read some and be like, oh, that's what that... Okay, yeah, that's a church thing. I think Ivy Day in the committee room is unreadable without footnotes. Like, it is... There are so many Dublin political and church references that it's like, I don't understand any of these jokes. Even Grace is kind of that way where it's like they're making so many jokes about Catholicism and he's it's such a satire of that religious uh, aspect and the kind of Irish Protestant versus Catholicism thing that it's like, okay, yeah, I, I got something out of those. Like there were moments I enjoyed. But without f- historical footnotes, yeah, those have about 10% of their potency or their intended effect, <laughs> you know? Um, it would be like in 100 years if somebody wrote a short story about the Donald Trump election in, like, great detail, it would make no sense to anyone. And, and you know, you just need such a situation. I don't know if you felt that way. Um, I kind of did with the Ivy Room Committee, but I... I, I understood that they were um canvassers and it was kind of right. I understood the the political jabbing and stuff like that um, and there's some clear stuff about people you know being bums and he doesn't have our best interests at heart and like right. there's some and even like the political names like nationalism versus other interest like there yeah there's some pretty common political undercurrents to it so it wasn't mm-hmm. yeah yeah maybe 10 percent is tough i was maybe at 50 percent get full like appreciation or comprehension yeah yeah and with grace i understood that um there was a lot of because I read the footnotes for that too, which was mostly about like the religion itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my my takeaway from that was um, along the same vein as as the rest of the, the the stories, like the main theme being that they're replacing their discontent with one thing or another. So like the main character was replacing his discontent with uh, alcohol, but they were trying to instead get him to replace it with religion but it's still just a replacement without actually doing anything towards fixing the situation yeah and it had some i think pretty readable like the final when they go to that mass or retreat or whatever i think there's some interesting like the way business is evoked and there's some symbolism at the end and it like i think it has a pretty readable in the literary sense um has a pretty readable structure or backbone or something to it for sure so again it's there were things to appreciate in both they they were certainly not bad stories and i think all four of these are better than if you took the best four of the first half i think these four are better if that makes i don't know if that comparison makes even sense (laughs) so it's like i think Mm -hmm. it was a stronger half but i think we chose the two most readable stories that have the most kind of basic themes where again of course there's references and allusions we'll have to explain a little bit but for the most part there's some pretty clear you know i don't know criticisms critiques insights ideas let's jump into them then let's start with a mother you're gonna kick this one off so take us through that story sure 
Mrs. Kearney, uh, nay, Devlin, married her husband to stop the gossips from calling her an old maid. Uh, that doesn't mean she wasn't a good wife. The couple seems to have a pretty happy marriage, though she's not exactly swooning for his touch. Uh, they have a daughter who is nearly perfect in the description of her. She's a talented musician, dedicated nationalist, and she's a beauty. Mrs. Kearney acts as a manager for her daughter when Kathleen is enlisted to perform for a series of benefit concerts to support the Irabu Society. Uh, Mrs. Kearney also helps to organize the concerts as the guy in charge, Hollihan, <clears throat> is a disorganized mess. Yeah, and then crucially, this part in the story, she is doesn't she drop the contract? Or she's kind of like an insightful business person, so she's able yeah. to... She like double checks things that he's clearly letting slip, including her daughters. Yeah. This is just a crucial, you know thing in the conflict in the story so yeah, yeah she's, she's yeah, yeah she's like a astute. She, she creates a contract and everything yeah she's very mm -hmm. detail oriented um however the concerts which is a series of four concerts um they aren't as successful as hoped so the society decides to cancel one of the the shows and throws more effort into the final concert mrs kearney insists that kathleen still be paid for all four concerts as per the contract um so that's the big conflict there. And then Hallahan is like, oh, I have nothing to do with that. So you need to talk to Mr. Fitzpatrick. She talks to Mr. Fitzpatrick, who says, oh, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to bring it up in front of the society committee. And then she, Mrs. Kearney, gets upset because she thinks that she's getting the runaround. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody's really paying attention and, and helping her out with that. So she threatens to keep Kathleen from performing. Yeah. Protest. And um, yeah, and then which makes the other performers uncomfortable because they're not raising the same kind of issues. Right. Um, Fitzpatrick um, comes in, pays her half of what the contract said, and was like, "If you don't go up on stage, and you only get this half, you don't get the other half." And she said, "I want that half now." Um, they get into a tiff and. Kathleen does not go on, but the show does go on. Indeed, yeah. And so they kind of have this really awkward confrontation, kind of leaving a huff, kind of a thing. There's some jabs at the end. I um, We don't have to start with the ending, of course, but I will say the footnotes... So I read the story as sort of like, oh, these incompetent, you know, artistes, this woman just kind of dominated them. And she's like, you know, it's like a mother. She's protective and she's paying close attention, you know, looks out for her daughter. It's interesting, though, her daughter being such a passive figure. I think there's ways to read that as kind of I, I don't know if it's exactly celebrating the mother, but I certainly finished it thinking like ah, the mother was in the right. This is how parents are. It's like a nice little portrait of parenthood and protectiveness. But then I think some of the footnotes made me rethink whether or not they're kind of it's actually more critical of her and her behavior just because. Like, there were some footnotes about how, like, well, actually, in the artist world of Dublin at the time, it would have been, like, extremely irregular to be paid up front, or, like, it was kind of socially, you were expected to kind of go with things and things change, and that, so it's, I don't know, I think it's a bit more complex than I read it as, because I finished it being like, yeah, those guys were doofuses, like, of course you get paid for the thing, you don't sign the contract blind, like, you signed it, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. she just, she was more attentive than you, and, like, also... 
she didn't get paid at all before she wore like while she was working like what's that about it was you know and they're clearly so sloppy with things and aren't being up so it was just like i didn't have any kind of sympathy for them and i thought it was a pretty clear i don't know um let's just say exoneration that's not the right word upholding of of motherly intensity matronly intensity or something but um mm-hmm. how did you read it then did you did it call into did you read it in a more complex way than that um the way that I read it, uh, I didn't have any footnotes about the, um, so you know, yeah, the social, social expectations kind of, of yeah. the, yeah. Um, however, the way that I read it uh, was actually um, a lot of it for me was based on how the the other artists and artists. <laughs> I like that mm-hmm. there's a, actually a, a distinction between the two. Um, <laughs> Um, how they how they reacted, which it was very much split in half, right? So half of the room was like on the side of Hollahan and uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, where they're just like, "Let us go on, like we want to show our our art and show support for the society." Which the society is, you know, this is a charity event, right? Um, essentially, right. Um, and so, but she's making it into a business transaction which is what those artists are kind of like this is meant to to support our our country and to support um nationalism um and then the other half of the room is supporting mrs kearney and they're like yeah i mean like it's a contract like this is a business transaction like you're supposed to be you you're totally in the right and i think also, I think that's why her daughter, Kathleen, is so quiet about it because she's kind of got a mixed uh, mixed feelings about it where she's, she, I mean, they, it, Joyce takes the trouble to say that she's very much a nationalist, right? She's learning the um, Irish language and she's um, learning Irish songs and, and all mm-hmm. this stuff. Yeah. And... Um, so she wants to, I think, support the the committee, regardless of whether she gets paid. But at the same time, you know, she's she's a good daughter, and and know, it, the more I re- her mom the more I reread the ending too, the more I think the story does kind of line up against the mother. Yeah, I mean, granted, there's some clear like there's the page on mine is one twenty five where the room is kind of split. And so it talks about who's on whose side. Then there's a couple interesting little details. Here's one. Um, the baritone was was asked what he did think of Mrs. Kearney's conduct. He did not like to say anything. He had been paid his money and wished to be at peace with men. However, he said that Mrs. Kearney might have taken the artiste into consideration. So it's like, well, yeah, that to me seems like a critique. Like, of course, you're going to be silent. You're you got paid, man. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, shouldn't everyone get paid? Like, why? What's happening? Do you, you know, is it? And again, in the art world, sometimes this is kind of the thing you're told is like sacrifice yourself or work for free, you know, earn your right. rep. Like it's this hasn't really changed in 100 years. I mean, <laughs> the social you know conduct or the social connections have changed. But I feel like when you hear about people starting off a creative career, this is often the kind of awkwardness that starts it. So mm-hmm. you, know, you hit on something. So there's that guy, a couple other ones. Uh, there's a line of thinking. She says, they thought they had only a girl to deal with and that therefore they could ride roughshod over her, but she would show right. them their mistake. They wouldn't have dared to have treated her like that if she had been a man, but she would see that her daughter got her rights. She wouldn't be fooled. And then later there's a person, Miss Healy. It says, Miss um, Healy wanted to join the other group, meaning against her, but she did not do so because she was a great friend of Kathleen's and the Kearneys had invited her to her house. So there's also this element of confusion of like, 
I don't think you're doing the right thing, but I just kind of, I don't want you to be angry with me. So it's, right. it, it does feel like on, on the balance, the room is, I feel like we're maybe meant to go against the family, but I don't know. It's just such a clear cut issue. It's also, I feel like I'm always just going to stand up for like, if you're a starting person, don't work for free. Like unpaid internships are a plague on this earth. Like we, we it's just mm-hmm. bullshit to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's also classist and like extremely how you, yeah, when you, when you expect an industry to function that way, that just means you're privileging people who already have wealth. Like that just is what mm-hmm. it is. So it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like my, I'm already in the bag for the, this reading, but I did. You, I was again, just wondering if you thought Joyce presented it in a more complex way, maybe. And I just, I'm like simplifying this too much. No, I, I, I think that you've, you've got it right. And even the, the dad, you wrote, um, you read the quote about the mom saying like, yeah, it's because, you know, she's a girl and I'm a, a, a woman, so mm-hmm. they think they could take advantage. But even her husband, right? She, like, tries to enlist her husband, and he's just kind of, like, in the background, like, uh, <laughs> I don't know yeah, what to he, do here. <laughs> yeah, he only lightly intervenes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, He's just, like, a quiet figure. Some dialogue at the end is also telling, so I'll, I'll read a bit of their exchange. Um I haven't seen any committee, said Mrs. Kearney angrily. My daughter has her contract. She'll get four pounds eight into her hand or foot, or she won't put, or, or sorry, or she won't put a foot on the platform. I'm surprised at you, Mrs. Kearney, said Holohan. I never thought you would treat us this way. In what way did you treat me? She asked. I'm asking you for my rights, she said. You might have some sense of decency, he said. Might I indeed? And when I ask my daughter is going to be paid, I can't get a civil answer. And then she, <laughs> this is, so this is when I need a footnote, because then she says, you must speak to the secretary. It's not my business i'm a great follow the diddle i do did you catch that line because then he says i thought you were a lady and walks away abruptly did you catch that little line so apparently that follow diddle i do which mm-hmm. i just i had no i mean reading without a footnote i was like oh is, is that like a joke or insult but apparently she's like taunting his accent it would be kind of like if you said to me like come on don't be dramatic and i was like come on don't be dramatic it's like that kind of a you know like she's like <laughs> ah. mocking him with her tone i guess it's like an accent thing maybe that like she's making fun of mm-hmm. his irish accent versus her like more formal one i guess um there's another class undertone, too, that the footnotes kind of were teasing out, where it's like she's actually being a bit more elitist to them and, like, treating them like she's more pretentious and and kind of, like, upper class and is taunting them like they're low and below her, which is just funny to me because, again, my contemporary reading of this is, like, the opposite, is, like, pay the starting artists. Like, don't take advantage of these people. Like, come on. It's if you can't expect somebody to get started for free, etc. But I think the story might be tilting it intending to tilt it the other way which is interesting because i think that that taunt is meant to be it is meant to indicate i i guess a bit of a class critique on her part like if she's mocking him i don't know if you Mm. caught that line it's interesting though yeah i was i just kind of like skimmed over that because i was like she's just maybe it made me think of like ned flanders from the simpsons like maybe she's trying to like (laughs) do her own weird swear i don't know um because he does make the comment about being a lady and even at the very end she he says that's a nice lady oh she's a nice lady and then they say yeah. you did the proper thing it's so yeah 
Yeah. And because he keeps evoking the ideas of, you know, tradition or behavior, social norms. And she's just like, well, we're getting paid, you know, like the contract is. So it is. Yeah, it's a bit of a thematic contrast between them. Um, Here's the exact footnote on it. Uh, The class stuff, I think, came from another footnote. This one just says it is a nonsense phrase which implies truculence and devil may care contempt. Mrs. Kearney imputes arrogant self-satisfaction to Mr. Houlihan in this exchange. And so, yeah, I think it it is just kind of like I said, just kind of a simple verbal taunt in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think some of the class stuff was in a different. I'm not going to dig through all the footnotes. Obviously, there there's already an overwhelming amount. But yeah, it's it was intriguing in that way. This one, I think the conclusion. I don't. I mean, these stories can be. They're kind of boldly open ended at the end, or boldly kind of quiet. Some of them in the way they finish and their conclusions. This one I felt like had such a clear climax, though. It was maybe in that sense one of the more readable stories. Yeah, it it followed this the traditional structure a little bit more than the other stories, which are just character portrayals in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. This one had a clear, um, yeah. you know, it's a little plot plot mountain. Back to back yeah. to sixth grade English, <laughs> fifth grade. Um, anything you want to quote about that? I know you wrote down a note about the portrayal of women because it is. I mean, you know, the collection on the whole has some really fascinating women in it, but this yeah. puts puts them at the fore. Yeah, the um, so I mean, the title is a mother, and I think it's pretty telling that there's no adjective to go along with that, like a good mother or anything. It's just a mother, mm-hmm. um, and. So we've got three characters that I thought were interesting. So we've got Mrs. Kearney, we've got Kathleen, her daughter, and then we have Miss Healy, who is Kathleen's great friend. So Kathleen is, as I mentioned before, is like set up as almost as like perfect woman, right? She's um, she's a nationalist. She's um, a, a musician. She's beautiful. She's obedient. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's demure. She's all these uh, great things, right? Um, then we have Miss Healy, who's her friend, uh, who's also an artist. But we get um, actually a depiction of her kind of like flirting with the one dude, um, and he's like, uh, "Let me see if I can find the quote real quick." Um, but he is what is. Uh, the Freeman man and Mr. O'Madden Burke. The Freeman man had come in to say that he could not wait for the concert, um, but he was a gray-haired man with a plausible voice and careful manners. He had not intended to stay a moment because concerts and artists bored him considerably, but he remained leaning against the mantelpiece. Miss Healy stood in front of him, talking and laughing. He was old enough to suspect one reason for her politeness, but young enough in spirit to turn the moment to account. The warmth, fragrance, and color of her body appealed to his senses. He was pleasantly conscious that the bosom which he saw rise and fall slowly beneath him rose and fell at that moment for him, that the laughter and fragrance and willful glances were his tribute. So... This guy is older, right? His hair is gray. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but he's a he's a part of a company, the Freeman Man, right? So mm-hmm. um, he's got a steady job. He's um, older. She's a young lady, right? She's Kathleen's age, but she's flirting with him, and nobody seems to. So this is a way to get like monetary gain and status. Um, and things like that without 
being critiqued by society for doing it as as a woman at that time, right? right. Yeah. Um, whereas the mother is much more like business, where she's like uh, very obviously head to head with the the committee and <laughs> with these mm-hmm. guys. Yeah, yeah. Asserting herself, um, not backing down. So we have, I think, like it's a spectrum. So we've got Kathleen, who who's very demure. And like very obedient. Then we have Miss Healy, who is playing the social game to to gain something for herself. And then we have Mrs. Kearney, who is taking on actually a masculine role and is therefore shunned by the others in the group. Yeah, the committee. Um, and like I said at the exactly. end too, I think it maybe read one of those quotes. But there's so many references to like her conduct. You know, this is socially not a the norm. You know, I thought you were right. I thought you had proper, you know, proper etiquette or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Calling her a lady, but actually meaning that she is not. Yeah. A lady. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you read? So yes, how do you read her daughter in all this? Because she is, I think, in the back half silent. She is, yeah. Or I mean, close. we don't actually get her voice at all. Oh, okay. I she, thought maybe, she doesn't actually have. It. I thought, yeah, maybe early with her father or something. There was because he speaks a couple, t- you know, he speaks a couple times. Yeah. But no, yeah, actually, you're right. Yeah, I think she does actually say one thing. I just like randomly flip to it. Um, there, Madame Glynn, the soprano, walks in, uh-huh. and then the the one line that Kathleen has is, um, "I wonder where did they dig her up?" Said Kathleen to Miss Healy. I'm sure I never heard of her. Oh, she's, she's got her little elitism going then too, I suppose. Yeah, you know, for her own yeah. debut, it's a high talk. Yeah, another complication then to the reading of this because it's maybe maybe a little bit more class critiquing of this family than I. Again, because on just such a baseline plot summary, I thought you know this has such a clear reading for me. But I, you know, as with many Joyce. Um, stories and aspects it's maybe a bit more subtle because if that's literally all she says and it's like well yeah. aren't you a little elitist <laughs> you know aren't mm-hmm. you a little asshole about <laughs> that's that's how you approach your first ever job like come on being that pompous but no i yeah she's she's i felt of course sympathy for her at the end because it's in another kind of baseline human experience thing there's nothing more mortifying in your teenage years than having your parents like go off in public that's definitely I don't know how you feel, but I guess I was always uncomfortable with that for whatever reason. Yeah, to to see uh, argumentation of any sort. Yeah, I'm definitely somebody who does not like confrontation. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, from parents or otherwise, in any group. Yeah. <laughs> um, any other thoughts on this one? I feel like we unpacked a lot of the interesting elements. I don't know if I have a clear thematic reading, but you know, we're not here to write a paper, so not our job. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to make I, a thesis. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, I also thought it was interesting that the title is a mother, and the focus is obviously on on Mrs. Kearney, mm-hmm. but the the novel the novel sorry the story begins and ends with Hollihan. Yeah, this is, um, I was wondering when I could bring this up. Joyce loves this shit. 
He loves it. He <laughs> never starts a story with the main character, I don't think, one, maybe like one or two times. This is his favorite yeah. device, I think. And it's a pretty, you know, it's novelistic in that sense, like swapping point of views and taking a, taking a wide third person kind of perspective. But like, yeah, I mean, we could, if you want to give a quick reading on that, you could. It's, it's He does it all the time. It's like once you notice it too, it just makes me laugh. You know, he does it in the dead, <laughs> does it in, I think, Araby too, even starts with like a different character and then shifts to the kid. Uh, if not mm-hmm. that one, then again, it's it's one of his favorite things. Yeah. Any thoughts I, on that? I, just, I don't know. I think that it's... Uh, I think that in this particular story, maybe Hollihan is supposed to be um, maybe the voice of um, the the society at the time of how he might see and react mm-hmm. to Mrs. Kearney. Um, from that reading, I suppose. But at the beginning, like the description of him, because he's described as having like a game leg, and um, and he's kind of like in disarray, in general disarray yeah. as he's walking up and down the the streets. Right. Um, <clears throat> so he's almost like a sympathetic figure at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, and even at the end when he's like, "Oh, what a lady!" He, he's like personally affronted by her. It's it's a little right. And and after the reading of the fiddle fiddle whatever, like yeah, like she's really taunting him hard. She's gone beyond yeah. like she's gone beyond you know the reasonable disagreements over how her his business is done to like complete you know mockery and really really attacking him. Yeah. So again, like he's he's a, a sympathetic character here we, we kind of feel bad for for him um i think there's protective of him i think there's a reading of that yeah it's a tough case of and this is you know reading things across the ages and times and you know any topic of course can have some subtleties to it as as joyce is want to do but it's like i just would come in with this with such a baseline expectation and for, especially from an artist such as himself who struggled it early in his career like didn't exactly get things going for for a while and and just to like have this have a different shade to it or or whatever it, you know i appreciated it so of course a bit yeah. more complex than it seems can't can't just walk away feeling clean about it you know <laughs> yep. or simple i guess simple um let's jump to the dead uh that one took a lot more time than i expected but that's that's the excitement of some of these uh for the stories that that work well uh the dead i think will take a bit to unpack like we said it's the longest story in the collection by far maybe even novella length um let me let me break this into chunks maybe (laughs) so i'll do it in parts uh open we open on a cold day in dublin in fact a blizzard day which i only learned from the footnotes that this is actually extremely rare which is funny i would have assumed it's not but ireland is i guess a pretty temperate climate it's just i always picture great britain part of the world like raining all the time so i guess i didn't expect snow to be so rare i also grew up in a climate where it snows all the time uh wisconsin so like i guess this is a much more rare occurrence than than not um as a heads up but it's blizzarding it's you know fully everything's blanketed in snow and gabriel conroy arrives to a party he's going to participate in mrs i believe it's morgan's annual dance which is kind of what it sounds like there's some singing and dancing some waltzing it's a grand affair it's also like a friends and family thing and they also have a big feast uh was this also for christmas he alludes to christmas at some point but i they didn't call it like a christmas celebration did they they did not they it was just a um 
a winter dance. Yeah. It's a yearly thing, but yeah, I don't remember there being... I don't remember thinking that it was specifically for Christmas. At some point, I think it's to the one of the cabbies or something, he says something like, oh, it's... You know, joy to the Christmas season, or I, you know, I'm just trying to remember the quote, but he he references it. But this is for something else. It's like a winter celebration. They're having a feast and a party and having a good time. Uh, they arrive. There's a couple of people there. His aunts are there. He is the son of a, a woman who's now deceased, so his mom is dead. But his two aunts are there, um, and preparing food and you know, like entertaining in the dancing hall slash parlor. They're enjoying some piano and they're waltzing and having a good enough time. Like we're introduced to a bunch of characters pretty quickly. And I, I don't know how many of them we'll end up discussing, really. It's a, it's kind of a big story, but it really is about Gabriel and then ultimately his wife, too. Um, he chats with Lily. That's another character of note. She She's the one who starts the story. It's the caretaker's daughter. He feels bad when he implies that she should be married soon, it's, and seems, she kind of takes offense to it or seems to. It's one of the first early examples of conflict. The other one is that a guy, Freddie Malins or Malins, arrives. He's about his age. He's 40, and he's really drunk. Also, the people mentioned that they're like worried about him when he arrives he'll probably be drunk um also it's 10 p.m right not 10 a.m or is it 10 a.m i understood it as 10 p.m yeah because well and then later in this room when they're going home it's the morning so i just assumed they partied through the night they like feasted and partied all night that was but that's exactly how i okay because yeah sometimes with these things it's either i miss the reference or it's phrased differently uh, or maybe we're just meant to understand the tradition, and so we we can't since <laughs> we you know it's a hundred years later <laughs> yeah. plus. So, but yeah, I, I interpret it to be like, oh, they're having a late night like dinner party, and then it just goes until the morning, and that's when they leave anyway. Um, the only thing I'll point out, so I'll pause here quickly before the dinner gets going. Um, well, did anything in the early part of the story jump out to you? Anything to analyze, or any character interactions that you picked up on of note? Just like Gabriel's um, interactions with like Lily, who is the mm-hmm. um, landlord's daughter, who also is like serves as a maid for the Mrs. Morgan, mm-hmm. and how uncomfortable he was. Like he made some offhand comment about like, "Oh, I'm sure you're gonna, you've got like a boyfriend now," and she's like really bitter in her response. She's right. like, "Men are trash." Yeah, <laughs> it's really intense. There's also a woman we'll get to when the dinner and dancing commences that he dances with, yeah. and they have Ms. like Ivers. a really intense interaction. That's like seemingly out of nowhere. He's even really shocked by like, what the hell are we talking about? (laughs) Um, Yeah. How did you read that? Then I guess it's tough. Obviously, it's tough to read these things thematically without knowing the whole story. But feel free to spoil the whole thing. I mean, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) I just I thought that was it. We don't see Lily again. Like it's just like contained within that first scene. Um, But he's like so shocked that he just kind of like. (laughs) <laughs> he won't make eye contact with her. He's like, kind of stops conversation. He's just like, yeah, taking his galoshes off and like acting like he's really focused on that and just like practically sprints out of the. I, the I would say <laughs> that if you wanted to do a quick kind of touchstone thematic whatever connection reading, uh, it shows that he maybe Amanda doesn't have the best readings on what women are thinking about <laughs> or their emotional For states, sure. uh, which yeah. will matter a ton. It is literally the ending of the story is kind of that. <laughs> so this could be an early sign for us that he really misreads the the other sex that he just does not have. He has this really uncomfortable relationship with them. Uh, the only thing I wanted to pick up on quick in the first part is Greta. There's a there's an interesting... So it's notable, too, that when Greta gets introduced, that's his wife, who becomes really the main uh, character. To, I don't... It depends on how you want to interpret that. He's the main character, but she matters a ton. She doesn't really talk at first. He kind of speaks for her 
to start, which I only noticed after going back and I knew how it concluded because I was like, man, what did I know about Greta in the first third? She's basically not there. <laughs> she doesn't really talk yeah. a lot. She doesn't interact. But there's a couple meaningful lines. The the most important is probably uh, about how she got a cold last year at the dinner. She like caught a dreadful cold because the cab was freezing. And then it says he says, but as for Greta there, said Gabriel, she'd walk home in the snow if she were let. Uh, Amanda, this is foreshadowing, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the idea of being out in the cold and being out in the, you know, being willing to kind of endure the elements is going to come up again, is I guess all I'll say. Yeah. Yep. So I just want to point to that because when we finally get to the ending and have to talk through some of the ideas, this will matter. So anything else from the first third? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, let's move into the dancing and dinner. So there's more dancing, piano playing, everyone's having a seemingly good time. Um, Gabriel then catches up with an old friend or acquaintance, Miss Ivors, right? That was, didn't you mention her earlier too? Yeah, she was the, yeah. Yeah, she gives an him an one. extremely hard time, and basically immediately, uh, for his literary yeah. column in the Daily Express, which, if you're not checking the footnotes, you'll be like, I wonder what kind of paper that is. And then if you check them, you can just find out. They'll explain that historically for you, um, which I think it, it's a more... Oh, gosh, I forgot. Is it nationalist or not? I think it is a nat... No, it's a not a nationalist, because he's clearly not. <laughs> so it's like the, the non-nationalist newspaper. Um, they have a mm-hmm. small disagreement during the dance that's maybe actually a big disagreement, and they kind of argue. He ends up saying that she really wants him to vacation in Ireland, and he basically kind of... He lightly resists. I actually read it on his part as kind of social grace but then he she really forces the issue and then he just collapses and he's like i hate ireland like i don't like it here i'm this place yeah. is disappointing to me i want to go to other countries so it turns into a big i don't know big argument that the room takes notice um we'll come back to this i'm sure there are some other discussions before dinner but this one is just so heightened so the rest is just you know there's social banter and you can there's some character work and stuff the dinner itself is a pretty lavish affair which I'm assuming anyway, because of how many things are present and the food, it's, it's so interestingly described. The conversation is kind of mixed. Some of it's awkward, some of it's playful, some of it's fun. So in that sense, it's kind of got the family feeling of holidays, like it's, you know, part of it's comfortable and wonderful. And then part of it's like, why did the, my Uncle Bob just say that just now, you know, and not to put, I don't mm-hmm. know why I said I actually have an Uncle Bob and he's not the, he's not awkward. So <laughs> if you're listening to this, I, that was just a word I pulled out of my head. But yeah, there's some discomfort. I think at one point there's some... <laughs> Doesn't one of the guys kind of make some, not sexual advances, but kind of says something about pleasing women? There's just some awkward moments. You know, people are drinking yeah. heavily. It's that kind of dinner party. Um, they, they gossip a bit about theater, local and foreign performers, and, like, there, there's a little bit about Italian people who come through they admire. Um, and then there's some discussions of religion, again, pretty brief. And then it concludes the scene, the dinner scene, with Gabriel giving a speech about uh, the importance of Irish hospitality and how the generations are changing and how that's something to cling to. And then it's pretty warmly celebrated. It's just he the speech is received well. Unless, again, I missed some subtext or something. But it seems like he's kind of built this moment up as he wants to deliver something meaningful. Uh, and he seems to do it. Uh, let's, let's pause here also in the story. Anything from the dinner that you want to dig into? Um, the speech itself was um, really important, I think, because... He does it every year, but um, he was thinking about, like, earlier in in the story, he was thinking about what he was going to say, and he had kind of, like, written down notes on what he was going to say for this particular speech, 
and he had some quotes from Browning, I believe it was, mm-hmm. um, Robert Browning, and he was like, oh, I don't know, this group is like, they're not sophisticated enough for this, um, for these quotes, maybe I should like dumb it down, essentially, mm-hmm. right. um, which I think is pretty telling about who he thinks he is as a person. Yeah, certainly. Um, he also is notably, so I mentioned the column. It does mention yeah. that he's a college professor. I, I don't know to what d- extent his education goes, but it does mention that he does lectures. I, right? yeah, and <laughs> I sometimes call into question my, my comprehension with Joyce, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure it said that, right? Didn't it? It was like a line, but... Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't remember that. Okay. I do remember that the, uh, the column that he had was based on um, reviews of literature so he mm. is you know literary minded anyway mm-hmm. um, but then like after the confrontation with Miss Ivers he like totally ditches his planned speech and this speech about Irish hospitality hospitality bleh, um, was just like off the cuff kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so it's more genuine, less um, stilted, less less of his pretentious airs. Yeah. Um, which is why I think it was so warmly celebrated. Um, he's being honest yeah. there. Yeah, and I think you could read some of the phrases he deploys to kind of contextualize it as maybe a bit pretentious or something. He, But, you know, he's pretty self-deprecating in it, too, or he kind of acknowledges that, like, he's maybe not the one to summarize the moment of the country perfectly or or that he maybe even couldn't but um let, let's read into this dinner I, the other thing i thought we could unpack is the his argument with miss ivors but the dinner itself i think especially for where the story concludes and goes has some pretty meaningful little bits after the mm-hmm. the very lavish table is described a lot of meats a lot of fruits a lot of jams a lot of just a lot of food. <laughs> um, it concludes them with saying Gabriel took his seat boldly at the head of the table, and having looked to the edge of the carver, plunged his fork firmly into the goose. He felt quite at ease now, for he was an expert carver and like nothing better than to find himself at the head of a well-laden table. So this is some pretty like traditional symbolism, masculine symbolism, I think, at play here, right? Poke, sure. Poking and carving. Does it <laughs> boldly poking and carving? I mean, does it? I don't know if I'm reading that too simply, but it seems pretty clear that this is, you know, it's also notably just directly telling us that this is his comfort zone. You know, he's a commander. He he dishes out the meats. You know, what do you want? You want the you know, some breast? You want some thigh? You want, you know, what do you want? Light meat? And um, this is, again, going to matter a ton because the final third really shifts the story into another gear. And so it's important to pick up on these moments when, the, you know, before things really collapse in the story and it. It really becomes the story it is, I feel like, in the final third. Like, even at this point, yeah. I'm not, I wasn't really sure what the story was about. It may be, like, nationalism, maybe the role of this man in, like, his literary career, kind of, his family, because the aunts are there. But it really becomes clear again in the final third. And so I think this paragraph just takes on such added significance, knowing where it's going. Um, how do you read that paragraph? Uh, yeah, he's... It, it ties in again to the idea of his self-importance and yeah. and his um, his idea of like he's like romanticized his role in life and also romanticized the roles of everybody in his life like the family life which yeah. I think is important for the later 
uh, part of the story as well. It's mm-hmm. he is the head of the family, and and this is his job, and he he loves it. He enjoys it. He loves that his wife is helping to serve. He loves that his aunts are helping to serve. It's mm-hmm. um, very much a romanticization of uh, familial roles. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty important. Well, and I think too, unless again I'm forgetting some lines, feel free to dig up some. But I, I'm pretty confident that his when when we learn about his aunts, it's kind of narrated from his point of view. I think, and what I remember is there's some lines early on about how they they just like him so much, like he's yeah. their favorite, he's the one that they cherish. You know, his mom is obviously deceased, but they they treat him like you know he's one of their own. And I, mm-hmm. I can't remember if that's from his point of view, or if that's from theirs, or if it's like an objective, honest thing, or if he's just thinking that. But and again, I'm not going to dig up those quotes. But the story at least wants to introduce this idea to us and kind of mess with it that he is, yeah, he's like the golden golden boy. Yeah, that's. Um, I think that it was told from his perspective, and okay, like, yeah, I, I don't think that it was like the third person omniscient saying that. As far as I remember, gotcha. the, the thing is too is like the his mother was the elder sister to the two Mrs. Morgan, um, and she married somebody that they thought was like. I think they used the word unfortunate marriage or something like that. Mm. So they didn't care for his dad, maybe. I yeah. don't remember, but yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's um, that's how it goes. Uh, any other thoughts on the dinner? I, I, that paragraph to me, again, just felt so loaded. Uh, there's some there's some other quotes. And again, there's conversation about religion kind of briefly. I think if you wanted to read this not this in like a novelistic sense, like we'd probably have to unpack those quotes and deal with like, well, what is this saying about Irish nationalism and religion? But yeah. I, I'm, I'm on yeah. a one track mind because the final third, again, to me, unlocked the story. But I don't know if, if there's other theme stuff or ideas you want to discuss. Feel free to throw them out there to me it's like how dramatically this shifts it brings the whole thing into view so yeah yeah let's get to it then i guess nothing else from the dinner you said nope i'm good for next time miss ivors for next time (laughs) interesting little (laughs) weird argumentative interlude okay so the party dies down it seems to go well again like his speech is received well and you know they have a good time Uh, miss ivors leaves awkwardly but after that Things are, you know, seemingly fine. And so they're departing. They're getting cabs. They're trying to figure out how to go home. Um, it is then that Gabriel notices that his wife is in a sort of contemplative and almost lightly melancholic mood at the top of the stairs. If you want to read archetypes, there's there's a, a height difference there. And she's kind of in the dark. Mm-hmm. She's masked in shadow because, as it turns out, she's listening to a singer sing an old Irish song that I just forgot the name of. Miss something? It's a, it's a woman's name, I think. Miss? Oh, shoot. Uh, no, the name of the song was... Lass? Is Lass in the name? Uh, let's just pull it, I guess. Let's do... Should we do our diligence here? You know, we've got other... The cool. Lass of... The Lass of Ogrim. There oh, you go. from Ogrim. Yeah, and he goes up and they kind of chat briefly, but she's she seems kind of out of it and really transported by the song and is contemplative for sure, maybe a little absent. They they talk about how the singer was really good and it was this guy who, who didn't want to sing all night. He was reluctant. And anyway, so it's, it's an interesting moment. And it really is when his wife comes back into the the story frankly because did she have anything going on at the dinner maybe like a couple cents it's just like i kind of lost her there yeah uh, yeah the only thing at the dinner was that she was in charge of serving the pudding 
Ah, okay. Excellent. Uh, traditionally, is that a symbolically feminine dish? Should we pack, unpack that now, or <laughs> we'll get back to it? I, I don't know. I just know that he's carving and poking and cutting meat, so that's all I got. Uh, anyway, um, they ride back to their hotel, which, again, they've decided to stay at a hotel instead of going back home because she got so cold last year. This is when his narrative like ramps up by about 10,000%. Did you feel this way? I was like, what the fuck is, where did this story come from? Uh, because... Yeah, the, the description of his lust. Yeah, he he's warm from the meal, warm from the attention, warm from the drink. And he, yeah, he's lustful. He's feeling kind of intensely... I, it's definitely erotic, but not... I mean, it's not eroticism how we'd probably think of it today. It's a bit more veiled and subtle. But he's like a... He's got kind of an aggressive aura about him. He wants... He's feeling very carnal, I, I guess it would be another word I would say for it. It's He's really yearning to reconnect with his wife, who at this point feels... He's, you know, like thinking back on their memories and some moments they had together and how things have gotten stale. And so it's really like his his emotions towards her are really intensifying enormously on the ride home. Any other descriptions for that before we get into the quotes of it? Uh, nope. Again, to me, it's just, it, I don't know. I felt this was a massive tonal swing, but uh, maybe yeah, I just, sure. maybe it's just because it, it was clarifying some themes to me. Maybe that's why I was like, well, I, this is like, I have to pay way more attention to what's happening here. But anyway, they arrive at the hotel and they seem that it seems like they're going to reconnect. Like they're, he really wants to let something out. He's dreaming of like touching her and kind of having an angle at the window or he's like picturing how they're they'll reconnect here and he just has all these visions of passion uh and instead she kind of cries out lays on the bed and reveals why the song affected her so much and it is because that when she was in love at 17 before he met she met her husband and everything that gabriel that she was in love with a, a boy i forget his name now uh worked in the gas works and died of an unknown ailment this was a song that was it they would sing together or that he sang for her i forget he would sing for her there you go yeah it's like his voice she remembers his voice um and she recalls the scene that, like, when he, right before he died, he came to her house in the dead of cold, and she had to kind of tell him to leave and get out of here, you're, you're sick, what are you doing? And he tells her that, like, he's ready to die, and that he's just there, I guess, to see her. He, he doesn't get dialogue, though. It's obviously she's remembering it. So it's like, right. she remembers that he was, it was cold, the cold was going to kill him, the weather's going to get him, he's unwell. And so, of course, Gabriel's, like, distraught by this. It was not at all how he pictured the night going. All of his, you know, passion, conquest imagery is dashed, and he doesn't know what to do. He tries. He kind of comforts her, kind of doesn't. She falls asleep, and he stays awake next to her. It concludes with him kind of contemplating their relationship, what his role in her life is, and, and vice versa. He also kind of thinks back on some of his family, thinks about his aunts, and thinks about death a lot. <laughs> and uh, it is indeed snowing in Ireland in that moment. Uh, <laughs> cue the symbolism or archetypes or weather, or whatever. And so, yeah, it ends with this really... It ends up being a story of marriage, I mean, and, and a million other things. But it, yeah, I think you could read the first two-thirds of this and not notice his wife much and be like, yeah, I mean, it's, there's some commentary there. But then when she, as soon as the, the eerie scene with her listening to the music starts and then the cab ride happens, I'm like, oh, this is okay. It's became much clearer to me. Any mm -hmm. broad thoughts before we do some quotes, maybe? Uh, sure, the... Uh, for for this final scene too, uh, so at the beginning he's very like uh, 
very much taking care of her. Um, mm-hmm. And they even make a joke, like the, the aunts and, and Greta make a joke about how um, solicitous he is. <clears throat> like mm. she's she has he wants her to wear galoshes and she's like no that's not fashionable right but he's he's very much he treats her almost as like a child in some ways where he wants to yep. keep her completely like uh safe so then at the end when he even like emotionally she's you know distraught and he's holding her hand um and like letting her get all these feelings out while he's um his hopes of of any kind of uh romance for the night are dashed and (laughs) yeah romance and i think i mean maybe it is time to like start reading some quotes for if we have any listeners digging in with us who haven't actually read and don't know we're referring to but like it's romance he's thinking of but it's like it's like conquest it's ravage it's like there's some really twisted it's you know he's he's amanda he's at the head of the table and he wants to carve you know what i mean it's uh (laughs) like yeah it's really intense and again it's the there there's hints of it you look back obviously at the whole story once you know the ending and you're like oh yes it, it was building to this um like we alluded to he talks over her a lot in the beginning and speaks for her and doesn't let her you know be active um do you want to pick anything up from the from the cab ride were there any lines that jumped out i'm going to try and dig back through and find maybe a couple that stood out but anything about those jump out to you uh yeah so um I've got here, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> There's a, he has a keen pang of lust. Um, and he could have flung his arms about her hips and held her still for his arms were trembling with desire to seize her. And only the stress of his nails against the palms of his hands held the wild impulse of his body in check. Um, wild impulse indeed. Yeah. When they get out of the cab, I, I dug one up quick. I hadn't planned on reading yeah, these, good. but I d- when they get out of the cab, she leaned lightly on his arm as lightly as when she had danced with him a few hours before. He had felt proud and happy then, happy that she was his, proud of her grace and wifely carriage. But now, after kindling again so many memories, the first touch of her body, musical and strange and perfumed, sent through him a keen pang of lust under cover of her silence. That's a quite a phrase he pressed her arm closely to his side and as they stood at the hotel door he felt that they had escaped from their lives and duties escaped from home and friends and run away together with wild and radiant hearts to a new adventure which you know there's such an ironic twist here because it's literally the opposite this is their yearly tradition but this is you know it's reinvigorated in him something it's like he's there's some yeah nostalgic lust like kind of waking up with him yeah i've got another one here Um, he was trembling now with annoyance. Why did she seem so abstracted? How did, uh, he did not know how he could begin. Was she annoyed too about something? If she would only turn to him or come to him of her own accord to take her as she was would be brutal. No, he must see some ardor in her eyes first. He longed to be master of her strange mood. Um, and then he says, Gabriel strove to restrain himself from breaking out into brutal language. <clears throat> about the the Malins and his pound. He longed to cry to her from his soul, to crush her body against his, to overmaster her. Oh, there it is. Okay, you found... Yeah, because we were, like, dancing around. I was like, man, I swear I remember some really... There's some real intensity to it. You just found it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any, fra- any phrases in there jumping out to you? Anything to unpack? I mean, it's kind of clear, I um, guess, yeah, but, I, like, any, anything you... Yeah. yeah. I, I just thought that it was interesting, especially... Um, 
uh, how protective he was before, and then now he's, like, wanting to just overpower her, but at the same time, he wants her to make the first move. Yeah, yeah, it's like, and there's there's a direct word in there for consent. What did it say? It's something about, uh, like, approval, or what, what's the... If she would only turn to him or come to him of her own accord. accord. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's twisted in things. I mean, they're, you know, I don't, wouldn't call it a partnership maybe, but there's something to it. <laughs> it's not, you know, he's not on a full on, like, like it's not an act of violence in his mind, but it's, it's, but it's undergirded by it. I don't mm-hmm. know how, if that's the right way to phrase it. Um, yeah, it's, it is. I don't know. Do you, do you think now here's what I'll say. We'll get into kind of a broad view for a second. I think this is the best writing in the whole book. This the final third do you think the story builds up to this appropriately or did this feel like a story within a story that he didn't quite prepare us for i mean looking back we've unpacked a good number of illusions foreshadowing some simple symbolism whatever but like did you feel like this was a strange abrupt switch because i did but at no. the same time i was like this i i it hit me at least a little where i was like oh whoa this is a the tone has has changed the ideas have come into cl- clarity but i also thought like well this is his best writing too i don't know if either of those statements mm-hmm. you agree with but what, yeah how did how did it hit you um it didn't um really surprise me that much um he has a conquering spirit um yeah. which is why he was so bothered by miss ivers and mm-hmm, so it mm-hmm. wasn't surprising to me that he wanted to end the night or begin his morning i suppose right, right. um yeah, yeah. <laughs> by by asserting his dominance over uh the woman in his life because he in you know by by carving and head being the head of the table he is asserting his dominance over the entire group um <laughs> yeah yeah of people um, but especially over his aunts and um, his wife there. So he's asserting his dominance over over them in that respect. He could not do it over Miss Ivers. He could not do it over um, the the girl at the beginning, Lily, who apparently despises men. And then so mm-hmm. at the very end of the night, once they get rid of like everybody else, again, he can be master. He can be who he believes he should be, which is like, uh, you know, the great Gabriel, the, um, the, ar- the, the archangel table or whatever yeah. the illusion. <laughs> yeah. We can, un- there's a, there's a footnote you should be reading if you, yeah, hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, isn't he the Gabriel's the one I've read this footnote and just, and already forgot, but it's like, he's the one who announced to Mary, like the, you'll be pregnant or something. He's like the, he's the harbinger of the, her pregnancy or something her conception i guess it's not whatever we want to call it <laughs> sorry christians <laughs> if i'm mangling the language it's immaculate the conception immaculate conception <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah immaculate conception yeah. um i think gabriel is also isn't he like the warrior angel for for god i think so it's certainly in like fiction outside of catholicism or christianity i've seen like him depicted in that way in other stories that want to allude to him so yeah, yeah, it's like I've seen him used in that way. I, I don't know how biblical that is, how biblically accurate, but yes, that's I picture him with a sword, you know. Yeah. Um, also notably, the footnotes brought this to my attention. I would have missed this. The other her seventeen-year-old romance who died. He he's also an archangel's name. Michael is also an archangel. 
Oh, and his last name is Fury. Yeah, yeah. He's the... Ah, shoot, this is where I should just pull the footnotes. <laughs> He's the Archangel. I think of something also kind of an opposite in a way. I just forget what it is. Well, well, out there for you listeners, you can, you know, go that next level deeper and... You know. Oh, <laughs> it's, it says here that he's the warrior helping the children of Israel. Okay. So both warriors then, fittingly, yeah. in a way, <laughs> fighting over <laughs> Greta's poor heart. Um, any So the only other thing I want to do with this story, because we've hit a lot of the key ideas or my reactions, yours. The final paragraph, Amanda, is the best thing in the book, I thought. I don't... And the funny thing is, I read afterward that that's, it's also the most famous, it's like the most cited thing. It's, you know, like Macbeth's soliloquy or, or whatever other, like, really famous piece of writing in English. So I guess I am just kind of a hack. Like, I don't have new literary insights, or I guess I just fall for the most <laughs> obvious thing. <laughs> but, like, because the final third was so intense and, like, really brought things into clarity for me and really ratcheted it up and the emotions are heightened and everything's, like, building, the final paragraph paragraph then is just the perfect culmination of something that's really that has distilled itself so it felt like kind of the perfect little distillation it also of course is is broad it's thematic it's depressing it's strange it's peaceful it's like a really i don't know i found it really potent so i'll, I'll briefly read it did, did you have any reactions to how this story ended i thought it was um surprisingly sweet <laughs> yeah let's well let's get into how that could be this is the final paragraph and again, she's asleep. He's next to her thinking about what she's revealed to him and everything the night. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the Bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury was lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. So you can't end a story with a sentence quoting all the living and the dead and then not think that this dude, he, he thinks he's on one. <laughs> his, his like literary confidence must be extraordinary if your final thought is... This is the universal truth. This is the thing mm -hmm. that is occurring to all peoples throughout all of time, whether you're here or gone. Um, and there's about a million images we could analyze. Let's, I don't know, pick our way through what we found most notable. I It's a bit of a goosebump read for me, I think. Like, again, I just reacted very strongly to this paragraph. I found it really devastating. Like you said, maybe a little sweet. Um really conf he's really conflicted obviously any any images you want to unpack or just i don't know details to analyze well the reason that um i said it was sweet is because like at the beginning when he was having the argument with miss ivers and she was like you should go to the west and he's like nah i, I don't i don't want to go to the west i, I want to get out of this country i don't want to stay in this country of course and he mentions it to his wife and his wife was like oh let's go to the west i haven't been there in so long and he's like no right right he did <laughs> shut that down too. another moment we we didn't bring up but it establishes his you know dismissal of her in another way he does do that exactly exactly but then in this paragraph 
he says that it's time for him to go there and and he's finally after seeing you know after hearing the story for his wife and and being there emotionally for his wife um he now is willing to give in to his wife and take her Mm -hmm. back home um yeah to to her love i mean you know and then the next sentence is it lay thickly on the drifted crooked crosses and headstones so I, you know, uh, maybe a peaceful image of the dead. Snow is already kind of a complex little thing to unpack here. It's obviously like a peaceful purifying force, but like in this case, it's, you know, it's settling things too. It's still, but then on the spears of the gate, on the barren thorns, like it's very painful, you know, it's, yeah. it's very like, it's definitely dangerous. It's, it's guarded. If you want to read spears in that way, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna cut, it's gonna bleed. Like I don't, it's. I, you know, that's uh, obviously some of our favorite writing is this way where it's you think you see something and then you look at it, you shift the focus or it's like a diamond, you change the reflection angle and you're like, well, that's not the same. <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. the same color it was, um, which, yeah, it's like it's very it's very powerful and very going to be damaging for him, I think, or something. Yeah. For him, but healing for her. I think so. Yeah, yeah. If she can be healed, I, she's obviously quite absent from that paragraph in a sense, other than that she's living and snow is falling on her too. You know, it's like it's come for everybody. Um, but yeah, any other? That's that's the sentence I thought I'd pick up on the most too. The with the thorns and the stabbing. There's some there's some neat little poetry there with some of the phrases. There's some like little inversions and yeah it's it's poetic in ways too and anything else to unpack from the final paragraph um no i don't i don't think so not for me did um i know i was effusive about it get your thoughts in here was it the best story the best writing like feel free to anything at the end now that we're almost done with these stories anything jump out i think that it was the most complete story i think that Mm -hmm. the other stories were left open ended much more so than this story was that's fair um yeah yeah but i i still enjoyed like each story i think had its own merits and and i and i enjoyed reading each one uh, for a variety of reasons yeah they they bring they all bring something a little different and certainly some are clearer than others i think this one Again, I will. I would have to unpack in, in perhaps a follow-up pod. You know, we'll do the part two, trying to understand Joyce. But I, I did feel like the final third was just was just different. I, and again, I'd have to really dig into why I, it hit me that way. Maybe I was just paying more attention or something. I don't know. Or maybe when he started having like violent lust images, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so, okay, now you've got my, like before he was just kind of a, you know, kind of a more passive, just having a dinner annoying guy. But now it's like, whoa, this is anyway, intensified. Um, excellent. And, I think the, the last half as well was way more like mm-hmm. footnote heavy. Um, oh, I can see so it. I think um, so I think that there was more of um, perhaps like the political and religious analysis versus the first half, which was a lot more like character heavy and like just mm. um, there were of course like politics and and religion that were in those stories, but it was also like human relations heavy. Gotcha. Um, the dinner ramps that up too, I think, in yeah. ways. Again, we didn't yeah. we didn't really dive into some of those cross conversational conflict moments uh, just because we had other goals for the story to discuss. But yeah, to do a full reading of it, I think you'd have to look at like, what are his beliefs exactly? What is Joyce maybe teasing out about him compared to the others? And yeah, it's a lot, a lot going on. Okay. Um, let's move to our final segments. Do you want to, do you want to break for a minute? 
Oh, okay. I wasn't sure what wasn't sure what the baby was up to. <laughs> <laughs> she's um, eating now. She's good. Yeah, she's happy. <laughs> she's she's in the zone. We will end with our two final segments as per usual. We've got critical assistance up first. This is when we go outside of our own analyses and pull a review or a article or an essay about the work and just kind of yeah look outside ourselves for some critical thoughts and see see what they've got for us out there. Um, why don't we start with yours today? You pulled from the Paris Review. I did, um, and this was written um, a few years ago. So uh, it is called "Everyday Blasphemies" by Paul Murray, who is from Dublin mm-hmm. originally as well. So I thought that was a pretty interesting perspective. Um, he says, "I didn't get all of it, or even most of it, and yet while I read it, I felt my agonizing homesickness abate, and I realized the city he presented was one that I knew. There were some cosmetic differences, shillings and half crowns, trams instead of cars, but the characters themselves, the machinating mother, the pitiful daydreamer, the two ironically named gallants, the slithering monstrous old josser." I had encountered before and the pervading sense of frustration and entrapment that was familiar too. This is a book about people who felt just like I did in my teenage disenchantment that nothing of significance could ever happen in a second rate city that love heroism, any kind of self definition was impossible on its pokey crowded stage. So you and I had talked about uh, before that the themes and, and some of the, uh, what's happening in these stores it's despite it being set specifically in Dublin over a hundred years ago the reason that it still resonates is because the themes are still you know relevant to today which is like a lot of these stories are exploring like human relationships and stuff like that and and general discontentment so I pulled that because yeah he's from Dublin and he but he also notes that this is like you know a different time but he still feels it is relevant for him as well today. Yeah, I think it does achieve that, and it it's tough. I had two very different reading experiences, obviously, first time trying to keep up with every footnote, second or first half, sorry, doing that second half, not checking them at all on a first reading. I think the second way is the way, honestly. It's like read it first pure, then go back and realize how maybe confused you were or how you missed something. It's, I don't know, yeah. it just felt right to read it that way to me. And I think it they hold up on their own, obviously, enough to to make it like you can approach it on your own terms. And of course, if you need that assistance later, which literally every modern, con- sorry, contemporary of us reader would need. It's like you cannot understand the political situations, the religious ones without the footnotes it's just not possible there's no mm-hmm. no public education on earth would prepare you not even ireland's i bet <laughs> it's like yeah. you wouldn't get everything you know and so mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a good way to put it too but yeah universal for sure any what else from this one um he continues with it didn't matter that the nuances escaped me dubliners is one of those books that tracks you through life that you return to again and again finding something new every time Though Joyce had written most of these stories by the age of 23, he did so with the understanding and forbearance of someone much older. He often portrayed himself as sitting in judgment on his fellow Dubliners, whom he once described to um, a friend as the most hopeless, useless, and inconsistent race of charlatans I have ever come across. Mm. Yet what gives the stories their tremendous power is precisely their refusal to judge. 
The men and women depicted are a shabby bunch, drunkards, life beaters, narcissists, hypocrites. But Joyce is careful to show the forces that have made them who they are, the exigencies that constrict them, the disillusionments that have sapped their will to act differently. So I thought that was important because I, I definitely have noticed that as, as a theme is like their help, their feelings of helplessness. And so they just fill the void with other things like religion or alcohol or other ways of showing that they are more powerful than they actually feel. Yeah. Whether it's like talking back to a boss or going out to the pub with their friends and talking smack about inspiring a house worker to steal from her boss (laughs) that was in the first half i think (laughs) yeah it's it is pretty impressive the scope of the characters too because it's i would say it's mostly concerned with the i don't know if we i don't know if this would fit in with the timing of when this was written but like the lower classes the working classes like people hard up people on the what we would say today is like paycheck to paycheck or whatever the expressions would be to convey that um or you know whatever euphemism but so i think it's largely concerned with those kinds of things and yeah it definitely succeeds for that it's you get all kinds of motivations some of them are prickly some are pathetic it's yeah it's impressive in that way too it's definitely not one track minded Mm-hmm. Though I don't, I don't think it has much sympathy for the ruling class. <laughs> like none of the characters are up in the up in the upper echelons of power. I think that's the one group that he does not inquire, like inspect. You know, right. The closest that we get would be Gabriel from the Dead and the committee room. Uh, the I guess. Kearneys. Yeah. The, well, but they they work for the politicians. Right, just, they're not actually. Yeah. yeah he never shows yeah. up. Yeah, it, but Mrs. Kearney from a mother is at least thinks that she's upper class. Yeah, which so. yeah, that again we already did that complex reading earlier in the pod, but it definitely yeah, some of the the digs at her were more subtle than I I thought at first. Yeah. Anything else from this one? Uh, yeah, the final one um, is his conclusion to his writing. If Chandler brought murder back in the alleyway, Joyce put genius back out on the street. He is there still amid the replicas, holding up his nicely polished looking glass to the shifting crowds. Turn the page and find yourself. Um, He's referring to Raymond Chandler, who's also an amazing writer. Uh, Mm -hmm. But turn the page and find yourself. I, I found that interesting because it is something that even though I'm not from Dublin and you know definitely was not alive a hundred years ago (laughs) during the time of you know um, all that stuff but Mm -hmm. I think that there are pieces of ourselves that we can still find in some of these characters um, and pieces of if not ourselves and people that we perhaps know and have met in our lives that we can relate to in the reading yeah certainly it's when you have a short story collection you hope for what what things do we always kind of pine over here it's like diversity experimentation Mm -hmm. be bold you know take chances they're not all going to work anyway and this one i think i don't know if stylistically i would call them experimental but especially since today there's so much genre fiction and it's like you can get weirder stuff elsewhere i guess is what i would Mm -hmm. say like more more bold than just the kind of baseline creativity but this is like a very grounded human version and i think it is bold in its in what Mm -hmm. it picks and or what it depicts i guess so yeah, yeah. you can find yourself here for sure mine is from the intro of the centennial edition because mine had a forward did yours have like a forward or intro 
Mine had, yeah, it had an yeah. introduction. Yeah, mine too. Um, and this is from, or it's by, sorry, Colin McCain, another novelist and writer, a uh, contemporary one. And it's called Splitting the Atom. That was the name of the essay. I, it's like a little brief essay is how I would describe it. Um, a lot of good quotes in it, very insightful. And he's Irish as well, so he has a particular you know reaction to Joyce. But here's a couple of quotes about the style of it. Uh, it confronts the notions of nationalism, the work. It confronts the notions of nationalism, paralysis, solipsism, mediocrity, and greed. Joyce was unafraid to dwell in the alleys of the ordinary. He stated that he wanted Irish people to have one good look at themselves in the polished looking glass. He had a concern for the moral consequences of life. He even wrote to his brother Stanislaus that he wanted to give people a kind of intellectual pleasure or spiritual enjoyment by converting the bread of everyday life into something that has a permanent artistic life of its own for their mental, moral, and spiritual life quite a calling for any writer young or old and then he follows it up with his style is one of unprecedented documentary realism coupled with a grand cinematic sweep so let's start there um what'd you think of that quote about himself and his goals so intellectual yeah. pleasure or spiritual enjoyment by converting the bread of everyday life into something that has a permanent artistic life of its own i mean yeah it's when you take literary ambition and then write about boring things it's you know it's the hardest thing to do it's you you sap out the melodrama you sap out the conflict you 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 know dilute the story down to simpler things and then you also try and make it interesting do you feel like he achieved that here i think so yeah like the these are just you know everyday lives but they're interesting they they bring about you know they highlight the humanity and 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 definitely are thematically connected. It's uh, mm-hmm. what was the what was the final thing that you quoted there? Something about the cinematic. Oh lens, yeah, yeah. It's, it, that was the start of the next paragraph. But it's a nice little summary. It's um, unprecedented documentary realism coupled with a grand cinematic sweep. Yeah, so definitely documented. Uh, documentary realism for sure like when as soon as you said that I was like yeah that fits (laughs) yeah for sure and it's I think the the cinematography or the cinematic or however you want to kind of phrase it um, it's it's interesting I don't I think that the visuals get a, a touch bogged down for me in the the Dublin of it all, but that's the that's the documentary bleeding over. You know, it's like yeah. you can't yeah. you can't have thirty footnotes in a single paragraph and not feel immersed. But it's <laughs> it's a balance for sure. It's a balance. You just don't you don't ever want to let it kind of carry you out of the story. I guess that's a key a key thing. I think that happened to me a couple times early, but you can kind of get over that. Um, Let's see. A couple other quotes from this. He taunts the reader with words. He even taunts words with words. He allows the reader into his stories and at the same time eschews moral judgment. He is pushing the edge. The narratives don't seem to finish, not in any traditional manner anyway. Plot is rendered small. The stories have a whiff of tar about them. They are close to the streets. Those who were once deemed unimportant, working maid, gas boy, girls in the Magdalene laundries, are often at the heart of the stories. He was stepping boldly into what would become his future style. Again, I think that's true. It's definitely his focus I don't I think his play with language uh, maybe and again that's something that on a first read you just don't appreciate as much I don't know if all of that celebration of his style it was there with me but it definitely I mean his genius is clear in a f- more than a few moments just like his yeah cleverness wordplay the the turns of phrase the immersiveness like I don't know did you find his language like arresting or striking I I think it had it came and went for me I think because some of it I did feel maybe a touch bogged down but it's obviously impressive yeah I 
Um, as far as like language goes, I, I think that there were times where I was like, wow, that was, you know, uh, a great image or that was a great um, metaphor, especially um, when he uses religion more for um, literary as a literary device rather than as just, you know, mm-hmm. um, the thing for him to attack. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that there were some 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 great examples of some some nice uh, turns of phrase. For sure. Definitely. Definitely. A couple more. Nothing too lengthy, I don't think, from here on out, but let me pull a couple more quotes. It was, yeah, it was an enjoyable essay, a bit of criticism. A couple of things from, oh, about the dead. What was so stunning about the dead was that even in death, Michael Fury was, in fact, far more alive than Gabriel Conroy. Death had taken away a lot of things, but it had not taken away Michael Fury's story. Michael would always be dying for Greta. That was the way in which he lived on. The living and the dead gather under the same snow. They are brought alive by the act and art of telling. As a reader, I was being propelled backward to a simple, elegant epiphany, and part of the epiphany was that I had long avoided in its availability. Because uh, he, a lot of this essay is about how he kind of avoided Joyce, was almost like intimidated to read him, um, or mm-hmm. too intimidated. What do you think about that reading of the dead? Not really a theme we, yeah. we talked about, but it's definitely, yeah, any thoughts on that, that idea? Yeah, that, I, I like that idea, actually. I think that could be something that that would be a really good way to, to approach it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It would be curious but, I mean, to go back over and look at all, because there are other characters who they refer to, who like his mother, who's literally dead. And I mean, yeah. obviously, it's right there in the title, but we, you know, we didn't fully do our reading based on that. But it would be kind of curious to or interesting to go back and be like, let's unpack every reference to a dead person and like what effect do they have? How do they linger? Um, his is just the most, you know, brutal example for for Gabriel. It's like it, you know, wrecks his life at the end or whatever. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I just thought that it was interesting that he said that um, that Michael is seems to be more alive in a sense than than Gabriel is. That he's mm-hmm. more vibrant a character than Gabriel. More in her heart, for sure. Yeah, yeah. that's how the I don't call it nostalgia or just history or w- whatever. But yes, that's certainly can be true um final quote here about just kind of an overall legacy of joyce or joyce's overall legacy i should say let me find this quote quick a bit of silence to edit out later i think (laughs) (laughs) i just lost my page ah yes okay Final, this is actually the final couple paragraphs. A hundred years on and Gabriel Conroy is just as real as you and me. Maria has worked in the Magdalene laundries and her story is still emerging. Jimmy Doyle out there along the Liffey is still losing his shirt. Evelyn is forever about to go away. Tom Kiernan is still being besieged by Catholicism. And for a laugh or two, Freddie Malins is still buttoning his fly. These lives matter and they continue to matter. Joyce has made it clear to us that it is not true that we have only one life to live. If we dwell in literature, we can have as many lives as we want want some of them are damned some are not and what we finally encounter in the end is ourselves very similar to the quote you pulled honestly about yeah. you know having yourself be present the kind of immediacy of literature its power on people yeah any thoughts on the way he phrased it or the images there yeah yeah <laughs> i uh 
The, the, did Freddie Mallon ha- like have to button his fly? Is that something that I totally missed? I didn't remember that one either, <laughs> to be honest. But I, you know, it's it's an it's dense. There's a lot of stories, characters, and I didn't feel bad about missing that illusion or yeah that that reference that he made. I was like, yeah, that must have happened. I guess I don't. If it was a joke, <laughs> I, it went over my head. You know, probably in the footnotes. Um, I thought it was a pretty impactful way to conclude it. I don't. I have definitely reacted more strongly to other kind of literary classics than this collection, but I think yeah. it had real flashes of brilliance that all definitely that it will stick with me, and and mm-hmm. a couple co- stories that are incredibly cohesive. You know, I don't. Yeah. I kind of come away from it thinking no one no one deserves the praise we heap on them in the end. It's you know that kind of I don't know if that's like a certainly not fatalist to say that but it's I, I don't know it's like does anyone deserve the to be canonized in in so intensive fashion but you know i also mm-hmm. shrug and think like yeah I, this is a there's some real brilliance here like i could see why it means that much to people yeah yeah so um okay final yeah sorry that was just my final quote anything else from those two articles and then we'll do our final final segment Nope, I'm good. Okay, let's talk about the Hall of Fame. We conclude our part two book clubs with a literary, lightly, wait, lightly Hall of Fame? <laughs> no, the lightly literary <laughs> Hall of Fame. Uh, it's something we induct something. So we're going to take something from this work and put it in the Hall of Fame. I will do mine first only because I've made it abundantly clear. I, I had two. One is kind of my backup if you find my first nonsensical or too vague. I'm just going to throw the final paragraph of the dead in there. Um, yeah. It represents a lot of great things that I think stories can do. It's also rare in storytelling to end well, you know, it's like a lot of people have a great premise and then don't know how to wrap it up. And that definitely is its own skill. I think thematically the way it brought things together, the way it broadened out, the way it introduced new ideas and complicated the old ones that the story had already built up was, is intriguing. It's, um, it's playing with just about every little literary device. If you want to poke around it, uh, images and symbols and, and there's motifs and there's, you know, like little poetic devices in there. I just think it's a kind of a consummate. And again, I think this is, I guess this is just a really hacky opinion. Cause I think it's as the my essay told me, it's the most cited thing. It's like the most famous thing from the collection. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess sometimes literary consensus is not wrong. It's like, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think for a reason. It's, I mean, we just read them all. I feel like I engaged with them pretty earnestly. And it's like, there that paragraph is doing is accomplishing things that I don't know if every other story did. Uh, maybe a few. And so I think I'm just going to throw that in there. I know that's kind of, I don't know if those reasons are good enough for the hall, but it's um, I think so. It's just a, an amazing little snippet. I, I, I wouldn't even throw the whole story in there because like I said, I think the final or the first two thirds are good, not great. And then the final third has greatness in it. That's That was, again, my reading of it. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm throwing in there. Any any thoughts on that one yeah. or what do, what do you want to put in? Um, I just, for me, I, I was going to say to put in uh, the, that it's the most open-ended and subtle stories mm-hmm. that are still satisfying to read. Oh, yeah. Because sometimes you can get it to be so subtle that you're just like, I don't even know what this is about. Like, what what is this? Mm-hmm. But this is just enough to, to pique your interest and for you to bring your own interpretations to it. You can read the footnotes or you could not and still come away with your own understanding of the story. And it's still satisfying without leaving you like, Oh, I wish he would have like, kind of like made this more clear or Mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. 
No, definitely. It's, I think that was almost, yours is very similar to my backup in case that one, you thought that was like too vague or uh, too specific or, or whatever it, um, on that spectrum. No, it's, he lets things go and lets things end without really wrapping it up. He definitely avoids moralizing and, and that kind of pedantic mm-hmm. storytelling style. And that's always to be commended, I think. At least for from you and I, I think the two of us really prefer yeah. that mode. So, yeah, worthy inductions. Any final thoughts, then, before we wrap up on Dubliners by James Joyce? Nope, I'm good. Excellent. And, yeah, thinking back, I don't think we left out, because, you know, obviously we don't analyze every story just the way it goes, but I think we picked up on the kind of the best stuff or most interesting to me so well Mm -hmm. chosen all around okay um thanks for sticking with us all the way through the episode if you enjoyed the discussion you know leave us a like on itunes or spotify we're on all the podcast platforms so you know ratings reviews always help boost the brand tell friends and family all that good stuff Uh, as i mentioned at the beginning we're also on facebook and instagram at the lightly literary podcast so we appreciate you know following us there too sticking with us and keeping up with what we're reading amanda do you want to briefly preview the next three books because we always pick uh, three ahead. Yeah. So next up, we've got the novel uh, The Human Stain by Philip Roth. Then we have Soccer in Sun and Shadow by Eduardo Galeano. And finally, A Good Family by A.H. Kim. The the um, Joyce plus Roth plus the Galeano, that might be our most literary consecutive picks i think (laughs) um Mm because obviously philip roth is like an american the big big uh, statuesque figure in american literature of the 20th century and then i think the book i chose on soccer i wanted to pick something that was more literary than like factual and i read a couple chapters and it's definitely that (laughs) i don't which i i'm curious how you'll respond then because i know you you know sports stuff but it's not like a big part of your life right so i'm curious to see if it'll be like make any sense i really enjoyed it because it takes a thing i enjoy and puts poetry to it but yeah i'm curious how you'll respond i guess we'll see um excellent yeah so those are our next three picks we hope you stick with us through those thanks again for listening all the way through hope you enjoyed the discussion we'll be back with those books soon just keep an eye on the feed we post our book clubs every friday and our book recommendations every other monday and until next time we'll see you between the pages (laughs) 